your name correctly for me. Friedrich Lok. 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 Double O-C-K. Lok. Lovely. But and not Lok. Yeah, not Lok. <laughs> I, I know. I saw that. I'm like, it's definitely not Lok. I know that much. Uh, it's about looking here, but uh, <laughs> my name is Lok. <laughs> Lok. Yeah. Okay, great. And you have been here in Berlin running an art gallery for quite mm. some time, yes? Mm, 30... What is it? Thirty-one, thirty-two years now. You look stunning. For, <laughs> if, if you're as the age I think you are, by having been in the art business for thirty years, you look great. Okay. Yeah. No, I started with twenty. So you're still, yeah. No, in comparison, yeah, you still look great. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, so the you started thirty years ago, and were you in this location? Have you been in the same place the whole time? No, no. I actually for the first decade was. The super local as I was basically born, grown up, raised, going to school on the same block as I then got my first apartment in which I started this exhibition operation, I would say. It was not a gallery and it was, it was in 1988, one year before the war came down. So um, I was actually very interested and attracted by the East Berlin underground scene and especially also what was happening in music, punk music, but also I like disco. So it was... Um, you can't like punk and disco. Come yeah, it on. was a great fun. First go to the snoppy disco with a suit, then quickly going home and change to a leather jacket and finish the night in a punk club. So that's <laughs> that was me at the time. So great. I, I used to be a roadie. I used to do my share of drugs and partying. I, yeah, I understand that. And of course, or of course, and then you were always hearing the story that a band from West Berlin came after the gig over to East Berlin and were playing in like a private circumstance, a church, but you always got this information too late. So my question was how I become a part of the circle of this information when things happen. And the conclusion was I have to do something on my own. I heard about these apartment galleries and at the time there were none of them in East Berlin. There was Judy Lübke in Leipzig and I went to Leipzig to meet Judy and ask him what I have to, what I should do or what I have to be aware of. Mm -hmm. So he said, you can do whatever you want. Um, it becomes critical when you start to talk to the press from the west side and uh, you appear in the media in the west, then you're a target. Other than that, nobody cares. So they have... That's nice it was, freedom. It, and it was, you know, it was a different story than in the 60s as we're talking about the late 80s, the whole system was already so corroded and you were feeling the holes and Berlin was also a different situation than for example Karl Marxstadt which is now Chemnitz um, as yeah we were West Berlin was there was just a, 
just a little tiny wall, but we were listening to the same radio stations. People came and it's just that we couldn't go, but we were totally up to date. Hmm. Yeah, I'm totally, I mean, I've only been in Berlin now for two and a half days. Mm. So I know very little other than, you know, historical things that I've been taught and read and whatever. But as far as the arts community and how it's grown and how it's evolved and stuff, I know nothing about the history really of it other than, mm. again, things that I've just read. But I haven't heard actual stories and things like this. So it's all, all very new to me. And I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm here as a little baby. <laughs> Maybe just... too many stories from me. <laughs> I think it's fabulous. So the, the stories need to be recorded for posterity. Okay. Well. So then you're now pretty prestigious. I mean, you've, you've, you've been around for a very long time. So like just longevity in the arts industry is enough to like create a good, strong reputation. Yes. Yeah. So even looking back on my sports result in school I think I was always good in like a long distance running than in the sprint so sprint was I was always the last one in sprint but probably I kept the same <laughs> speed <laughs> over like 2,000 or 3,000 meters yeah, so consistency so that's maybe mentality so yeah I don't know well and this I mean this kind of question goes to basically the, the idea behind this podcast which is how can you be successful whatever term for success you want to put to that I think it's simply not giving up if it becomes difficult and it's always difficult and if you look around it's difficult for all the others as well in my field as artists so I know artists who are let's say financially independent but they are struggling as in the same way artistically like um, like a very poor artist. Hmm. That's interesting. So I found that also interesting. You're saying that an artist who ha basically, let's say, is financially stable yep. strugg still struggles. With his work, with ah, producing yeah. okay. his work. So, of course, he doesn't have to worry about... Um, the stuff in the fridge and right. the Paying rent to the pay rent, yeah. and this kind of things. But in terms of making a career and um, producing meaningful work or being an artist, same story. That's interesting. So, so it's possible that the nature of like sort of that struggle that artists have throughout their own careers has nothing to do with anything. Really, like we're we're going to struggle whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether we're happy, Absolutely. whether we're sad. We're going to have that struggle in whatever way. I think so. Yeah. Okay. If you want to achieve something, or if you want to, <laughs> yeah, make a career. And what's also interesting that there is a support system for the poor artists that, in a way, a known rich artist cannot get and well, now this is specific to germany prob probably 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 you're, talking, you're, the, you're yeah. talking about like the so the, the grants, grants and so, and stuff, because yeah. if you know this artist doesn't really need the grant people don't give them the grant and he does not get into like certain like grant shows which right. are the steps to grow from so it's a different kind of way he has to 
Um, so almost being like too successful is a bad thing because then it all actually closes. It's not doors. successful, so it's just um, I know, it's, I, I it's just the circumstances that you're coming from. I know I use the word success. I can't find yeah. a better word than mm. the word success because like people misunderstand that, and maybe even I'm using it incorrectly. Maybe it's the wrong word, but yeah. like trying to find uh, so, but like certain. So you're, what you're saying is, if an artist basically has achieved too much and gotten too good a reputation, certain other opportunities can no longer be available to them. No, I talk more about, or maybe it's a specific German thing about the circumstances yeah. and the support system. So where we have a fairly good support system also in terms of institute. Of course, it's never enough, you know. <laughs> I have never heard anybody in the arts, yeah, has ever said, but, you know, we got enough. But, uh, you know, we have the system of Kunstvereins, we have the galleries, we have the museums, and we have grants, and we have um, the art schools. And, and corporate sponsors, and, too. Corporate and sponsors some there. corporate sponsorship, but... So, for my understanding, in the last 10 years, corporate sponsorship was much more popular in the 90s. Okay. And they're now less uh, um, moving out of the field. Okay. That's interesting to know. Because, so. again, like my background is, is, you know, about 10, 12 years ago is when mm. I sort of transitioned to being full time academic. And that's when I sort of lost touch with what's how mm. the con the contemporary art mm. was working like i knew what i knew but i mm. sort of stopped learning more mm. so learning that the the trend is going away from corporate well, there sponsors. were these corporate collections yeah, which are basically like, now bmw exxon mobil like these there are some big international corporations with fading collections fading a little bit out of their activity or deutsche bank was super active yeah in the 90s they, they built prize these prize uh, awards and stuff right uh, yeah i've heard lots about it. so the, uh, they're doing less and less of that but you also see that deutsche bank is a little bit in trouble so uh, for them to spend a lot of money into buying art and also so at the same time same hand releasing <laughs> stuff <laughs> is not probably not the uh, best idea uh, no it's not the best idea okay for them so back to the gallery itself. Yep. So you have been around, you have a, a, a beautiful roster of artists. Mm -hmm. One thing I always wonder about galleries, they create a roster of artists. Are you trying to create a, a create a consistency? Like, are you creating a, a, a reputation of a style of a, an aesthetic? Like, a, you know, so like, it's not like how do you choose your artist, but basically like, how do you, it's not how you choose your individual artist, but how do you choose like the whole group? that define your gallery? I think it's just, um, it just tells about my interests. So, okay. so it's, it's just really, it's just really you. Me, yeah. Okay, so, so. so well, so, well, cause some people like look at. So you can analyze it afterwards, but you know, it's also, there are so many chances involved, how things develop and and the gallery program changes all the time, you know. Does it? And um, so if you look into the program in the early 90s, it was totally different from what we're doing today and probably in 10 years' time. And also, so when I started, going back to the very, very 
first show it was uh, it was just a spontaneous event it was not i want to open a gallery i had this empty apartment and i know that there are these um, exhibitions in apartments so i was asking around uh, at the time i was working as a carpenter in for the Maxim Gorky Theater here it's in Berlin. It's so funny. The, the, the side job of carpenter has come <laughs> up so many times <laughs> in these conversations. We're all carpenters. I do, I do woodworking also. So like I build my own frames for my work. Oh, so it's great. very funny. <laughs> yeah. Carpenters. We all end up as carpenters. So, and first, of course, I wanted to become an artist. Realized um, other people have more talent than me. Luckily, I realized that. And um, yeah, then I thought maybe I'd become a stage designer, worked in the theater already, like on the craftsman's side and mm -hmm. was always interested in art. And then I had this apartment making the first show, more everything happened a little bit like an accident. And this was very successful as I think 500 people came <laughs> in my little tiny one-bedroom apartment. It was like stuck in a Tokyo subway and on rush hour. And then somebody asking me what you're doing next. And I said, well, I don't know why you're asking. Oh, it looks cool here, so I would like to make a show with you. And I said, okay, well, of course, let's do the next show. And then I thought, mm, two is a bad number, so I should have at least three exhibitions um, to make a point or to make a mark right and in then going out and searching and talking to a lot of people i immediately had a one-year program together because i could not say no to anybody whom i'm asking so <laughs> i had these <laughs> mixed things of design and uh, um, super Super, it was not video at the time, it was Super H film yeah. um, screenings and uh, readings, poetry and super conservative landscape paintings and uh, all, no program, everything comes. So <laughs> everything gets in, everything who wants gets in. All and right. then the wall came down and uh, suddenly... Um, TV was there and press was coming and writing about me. And then also I got a little bit more ambitious seeing what Judy Lipke from Eigenart was doing. Um, so this was encouraging that there's a way to do that thing and eventually also make money or somehow make a living with it. But it took me actually four years <laughs> from the first show to sell the first painting. And that happened on the art fair, on the first art fair that we um, were able to well, That's enter. an interesting yeah. little tidbit. Like, So you were running an art gallery space, whatever you want to call yeah, it. It was a project space. Project so space, it yeah. It was really, it was not a gallery, so it has no... <laughs> well, but, but you were working in the arts for four years before you even really sold your first piece. I mean, that that's a huge thing that with the, the way it is now with the internet and Instagram and all these other kind of things, everybody thinks that, that, that the arts industry is so fast and immediate. Like you just put out a great piece, somebody sells it. Oh my gosh, you're popular, you're rich. But I mean, it's a crock. It's a complete lie. It doesn't happen like that. No. Does it? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, do you know some stories that I don't? Because I don't know those stories i feel like they're all fabricated stories that like of course make it's people. all about selling the story so and that's what you sell basically you sell the story okay i have a question from that selling the story 
I've had discussions with people about this off and on over mm. decades of, of experiences is artist statements. How important are artist statements in relation to work itself? I think, first of all, the work has to connect on an emotional level with you so that you find access or interest in going into. And then in going into, you're searching. And then, of course, it's interesting the whole thing about conceptual art where you don't see anything, just having an idea presented to you and that idea is valuable and tradable or they were thinking about mechanisms how to trade it, um, that's, that's then the voice of the artist. And of course, artists who are very articulate and um, reflective are often successful. Okay, so what you're saying is basically you need to have you do need to have a good statement, even if you even if you're not doing conceptual work. So like it doesn't even matter like what your subject is or even what your medium is or anything. But what like, it, it's necessary to have a good express uh, text that expresses something additional beyond the image I mean, okay let, let me give you a I'm background not sure. yeah, yeah, yeah let me give you yeah, background i, I know this. what you're asking yeah me, like but i hate writing about my own artwork mm -hmm. i would gladly hire a curator to write it for me like i'm so mm -hmm. bad with it because i'm connected to it i still have an emotional attachment to it and it's very dis difficult for mm -hmm. me to distance myself to write what i believe people want for, for an artist statement. So it's, so the question is, is well, also beyond that also like I, you know, people, artists and stuff are applying for grants and residencies mm -hmm. and things like this. And so all these, the idea of the artist statement is not just gallery representation and then sales, but it's also potentially other funding and or opportunities that are all revolved around the ability to write this mm. artist statement, which I find very hard. Of course, you become a painter as you're interested in doing painting, for example, right. and you're not a writer. So. Correct. That's, that's <laughs> the, the primary core to my question, which is like... But, well, of the, course, the first it's grade. always interesting to then discuss what you have done so and get the feedback, you know. It's all about feedback and the development of, like, the next step also in your painting. And... I so from my understanding artists need dialogues with their peer group artists artists talk and eventually uh, they find it in a gallerist or in a friend or in first of all I think it's this artist artist thing well, I think that's a very interesting because a lot of artists and a lot of also people looking at the art world think that making art is a very individual experience i think it's a solo experience oh it's, you know, you're expressing your own ideas hmm. but in reality sort of past the nature of like putting brush to canvas beyond that once the product almost like once the product is done it becomes more of a collaborative process from there forward the the working with a curator working with a peer working with a gallerist working hmm. with uh whatever to to whoever to 
elevate your career, get your hmm. work out more, get more whatever you need out of it. Art in general is just a form of communication. And um, so talking about me personally, my parents luckily uh, realized that I'm leg legasthenic and... I'm sorry, I don't understand that one. Uh, I don't know, so we call it legasthenie, so which is, so I'm, it's, it's really difficult for me to read, so. Okay, yeah, okay. I really <laughs> read letter by letter and reading for me is very hard. No, that makes sense. Um, so, makes sense but but on the other hand, this. I have much easier access uh, through like the visual. I get it. So, yeah. And other people are um, ha having their like brain structure more functioning through music, for example, probably. Mm. I don't know. And um, that's why you have musicians. That's why you have painters. That's why you have writers. And um, Okay, so let's take that a little bit of a, another step. Is it legitimate, in your opinion, keep in mind this is all your, just your opinion, in your opinion, is it legitimate for an artist to have a writer friend or a curator friend or whatever, somebody, basically somebody who's not them, write their artist statement for them or with Absolutely. them? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. Well, Best with them. So, and then well, it, see, it's, it's, it's something that goes back and forth. So when we write, for example, a press release here, somebody starts... Then the next person reads it, corrects it, brings in their ideas. I said, what, what, were, what, were, what were you trying to say here? <laughs> what, make it more precise. And then it circles. And after it made these one, two, three, four rounds, then we're all satisfied and thinks this press release somehow makes sense to everybody. Then it's done. And that's how... But see, that's totally foreign to my training in America yeah. a few decades ago where it was always like, no, you're an artist. You stand by yourself. You're stoic. You don't ask for help. You don't get input. You do it all on your own. Mm. And that's not true anymore. Now, maybe it was never it true was then. Never, it, it, it was never true. Yeah, I know. But that's the way uh, my teachers taught me. Mm. So like, maybe they were wrong. Maybe that's why I'm not doing <laughs> it. Because like, they, they, you know, they taught me wrong. I don't know. But, is, but so, so I never so, went to an art school. I have... What, what is your background? I mean, I, I have very little formal education, basically. I went, uh, I don't even went to high school. So I just had the 10 years normal school okay. degree final. And then I made the apprenticeship as a carpenter. One of my best teachers never even graduated high school. I mean, yeah. I don't feel like education makes for a better yeah. whatever. So, yeah just trying to be the best like putting the effort in putting the the desire in the intention in that's what's important because i know lots of people who don't have training in whatever they do but they're actually very very skilled at it so like yeah so they're curious in what they were doing sometimes probably. sometimes so. teach sometimes schooling can actually beat it out of you like <laughs> they, you can you can lose some some skills and qualities in the old days 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a reputation was just a sort of an in-town reputation. I would know you and you would know somebody else and, and we all just knew each other and we could whatever. Hmm. Now our reputation is also based on the internet. And so reputations literally precede us. Like, like if somebody just saw my name on a, on an exhibition or in an article, they can look you up and look up your entire 
digital life before thinking about representing you or thinking about buying you or thinking about working with you. It's gotten so big and so global and so scary in many ways, I feel. But maybe I'm just a nervous, anxious person. I don't know. But if you come, if you boil it down to the things, how I can answer to that question, story. So to maybe there course, is no great answer. No. So my experience is still that you want to know about the business. My business is very personal, one-to-one -one conversation with somebody. And uh, we haven't sold anything through any of these channels. That is interesting to know. I, and when I ask around to my other colleagues, have you sold something through Instagram? Yes, of course, people coming back to us asking questions or want to have prices, portfolios, blah, blah. But then nothing happens. Right. Yeah. So, the, I've except heard a lot you, sp you play a very stupid game of um, this expected price jump and they think they can buy something cheap and sell it more expensive tomorrow and uh, want to pass by you as a dealer or whatever. So, um, if you play this game, maybe you can catch some people's in a snowball effect and uh, this is to me but not sustaining and not interesting at all no it makes complete sense this all happens and it's there and uh, i see it from time to time but um, i also have seen a lot of hip colleagues that were super hip and they don't exist anymore yeah, so. well, and that, that goes into the like sort of longevity. Like yeah. you're talking about being like more of a marathon runner yeah. than a sprinter kind of thing versus being like a flash in the pan, hip, mm. hip, trendy, whatever. I mean, you, when you're sort of thinking about your plan for the gallery and the future of the gallery and things like this, uh, you're, are, you, you're, are you even taking into consideration trends or is it just purely like your own personal opinion, your own personal aesthetic? For me, it doesn't work. So it has to interest me. And when I'm on fire, then I can um, lit up the candle with somebody else. If I'm not under fire, if I'm not really interest, uh, not really into it, mm -hmm. it never worked. I tried it. So knowing that, oh, that might be a smart move or this kind of smart things, for me, it didn't work. It works for other people, <laughs> obviously. But I get it. But doesn't that, does it put you in a situation like, because what I'm picturing when you're saying that is like, I love it. I, I appreciate your passion and your drive and your, 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 your motivation and, and all this. And I respect it heavily. But does that ever get you to points where like, you're not selling as much? Like you're not getting the income. Does it, does that ever occur the whole selling thing is if you're not dealing with like blue chip stuff that like works similar like a stop stock option uh, right um it's 100 chance anyway is it yeah always so you never know 
you never know even with your best predictions how the show will finally look like and it's um, and there are so many factors involved to make a sale happen um, of course you have to constantly try and push and <laughs> pull all the strings uh, you know and you have but uh, there's um, you cannot predict anything for me like that feels very or i cannot scary i mean how you so more or less there's very little financial stability basically so like you could have a, a fabulous year of great shows that are received well and lots of people buy and then like the next year you could have an entire run of exhibitions that sell nothing probably oh that sounds so bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, of like, course <laughs> but, but what I'm always wondering is like, why do we? And so, like, I'm including myself in this because, as an artist, you know, sometimes I, I sell, sometimes I don't what sell. You make happen out of it. So in this moment, so it's past. Forget about it. It's of course it's an experience. It gives you confidence. And sometimes, uh, when for quite a while nothing happens, you know that things will wake up eventually. As you have gone through this uh, cycle several times by then mm -hmm. and you know of course we're in the valley so <laughs> what mountain will come and uh, or, i have a question about that so like when, when these sort of cycles happen do you sit back like let's take a, a dip in the cycle so let's say okay. you know not as much income not as much critical whatever you're not getting your feedback you want do you rethink your roster do you re like would you get rid of artists so like stop representing them, which actually then leads to another question about representation. But mm. let's start with that. No, I think you first question what is also the general situation you are in. And um, I would not question the artist too much, but the question is also if I'm the right person right now to make something happen for them. Okay. I love your loyalty. It's great. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, you, you have these cycles with in relationships, you know. You meet an artist, it's like falling in love, and then... <laughs> then Sometimes th the then, love blossoms, sometimes yeah, it doesn't. And sometimes <laughs> it's just a quick fire, and you were, you were seeing something that did not then happen, and it dries out, basically. And also, yeah, there are kind of trends in the air that you can, or that you have to adapt a little bit, hmm. or at least find a connection to. But it's all, I think it's, life is the dialogue with the others. Yeah, I mean, all of this doesn't happen in a vacuum. We're always yeah. influenced by whatever, life, media, all kinds of other things. So it's, you know, I mean, I don't think that any of this happens unaffected by the world. So, mm. I mean, of course, something always affects you. It's mm. fine. But the, the talk about representation makes me wonder, I, I wanted to know, do you work with exclusivity, non-exclusivity, geographical exclusivity? Every relationship to every artist in the gallery is totally different okay so so as you work with like internationally known artists for example alex sauce 
Super was, impressed, by the way. Love that you have uh, Alex work. I was very lucky to get in touch with him very early in his career. And the story was that I was in Chicago, I think, in the museum, the photography museum, trying to promote my artists. And then, of course, asking the curator if she has anybody I should look at. And she said, well, there was this young guy coming in with his portfolio. His name is Alex Haas. It's about the Mississippi. This was quite impressive. Um, it's here. Do you want to see it? I said, okay, yes, of course. Show it to me. I said, oh, wow, this is interesting. Um, I don't know if it was already the time of emailing or still faxing. Um, so I got in touch with him, asked, so with the prices, editions, I like the work, if we can make a show. And uh, then the shocking news was that uh, his price pack was $1,000 per print. And at that time, there we still had Deutschmarks. It was like 2,300 Deutschmark per, per print for a totally unknown artist from America. Um, edition of nine. I said, nobody will buy that stuff from me. It's pretty so high. It's, uh, <laughs> but American market is different. And uh, he was already selling. He had a gallery in New York. So um, I was a bit hesitant. And then half a year later, I was in New York seeing the poster of the Whitney Biennial. Alex Hoss was on the poster. Uh, I said, okay, so I have to jump. Or sure. this... <laughs> <laughs> this this train has passed, so I got in touch and said, uh, "Are you still? Are you in New York? Let's meet and uh, so let's make the show in Berlin." And that's how it okay. started. Well, I'm I'm my background is photography, so I'm fascinated because a lot of times I hear from people like, as a photographer, we should be looking at photographic galleries and not mm. galleries that have a range of. Uh, mediums hmm. so you carry i mean i'm sitting here in your office and you seem to be carrying a number of different photographers not just alex Auth. so you hmm. you deal in that photography was, and an painting and other things yeah, so. that was also an advantage for us as we were a contemporary art gallery so for alec it was it was a good story that we were not the particular photography gallery so he liked that mm -hmm. So to be recognized as an artist and not in this photo-photo world that um, much later we get more and more connected. Going back to the really beginning, so after having this first year, there was one artist, his name was Jörg der Knüffel. He lived in the neighborhood and he did a very impressive installation back in 1988 about the slaughterhouse in East Berlin, very tough pictures, photographs that he turned in an installation. So I was really interested in this guy and asked him if he would like to make a show with me. And he said, well, pff, it's a little bit small for <laughs> my wow. ego. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> and... Uh, um, but I like what you're doing, so let's keep talking. And then I had the chance to rent the floor below the apartment and also a space across the street. So I came back to him and said, well, uh, I have more space. Were you willing to do a show with me? And I said, well, okay, that looks more attractive. So let's do this 
the first exhibition and um, then he was also the artist that we brought to this art fair we sold the first painting by him and uh, so he really got the gallery going uh, also commercially mm -hmm. and also himself so it was um, equal um, situation and a very interesting and um, successful adventure for a couple of years and then he moved to New York did a big installation in New York that was an exhibit at the Hamburger Bahnhof but somehow things happen and uh, we separated and there was this break where he then stepped out of the gallery but from this history photography was always a part of the gallery story mm -hmm. Okay, little nuanced yeah. thing. Like, I'm just going to get like super technical about stuff because now I know that like mm. you work with this kind of stuff. Editions. Uh, so, yeah. short run editions, five, seven, 10, 20, or big editions, generally short editions, I assume. Yeah, up to 10. Up to 10. Okay. Do you, I think it's just a question what the market can digest. Hmm. Well, and that leads to the next question, which is when you're doing an edition, do you price the different numbers differently or is it every piece in the edition is the same price? We don't do it in a way strategically. It's not that I always do the pricing. So, for example, with Alec, um, there are other galleries involved. So I just follow what uh, is presented to me. And there was um, once um, this concept of uh, first editions are yeah, like, like cheaper. Number and one through it, five. Is because cheap, uh, the question is always seven, how ten. you get the whole thing going. So if you have um, an edition of, let's say, seven, yeah how you sell the first two, three things as there are seven available. And the question for the collector is, why do I have to make the decision now? So this mm -hmm. was just a concept to, in a way, level the edition out and say, okay, first. If you get in early, step, it's less expensive. Yeah, first. Basically. Yeah. So, so I think Elena Sonnabend, so from what I heard is Elena Sonnabend uh, invented that uh, well, that's with, uh, Sugimoto prints. Oh, it's from Sugimoto. Okay. All right. Because the, I mean, I didn't never heard about that when I was younger, but I heard mm. about it in the past 10 years or so yeah. that the people were doing this. And I was sort of like, I understand it's, it's sort of, it feel, but it felt like a business decision. Yeah. It, it was not a, I don't think that there's an but extra of, value. But on the other hand, of course, then it's a backfire as collectors don't, like it also on the other hand so um, I think a more natural approach is that you say edition one and two price let's say 5,000 mm -hmm. and uh, then we see from there when we have sold these two editions we may raise the price as prices get raised maybe well, Not, yeah, but, because I mean, uh, maybe maybe the number three doesn't sell for two or three years, and in that time, that artist's value uh, for all of their artwork has gone uh, up. So therefore, the print price still would need to keep in line uh, with the rest of their work, right? And you also at the beginning, it's it's a risky move as you don't know um, how the dynamic will be. So if you increase or if you build such a structure and it doesn't work it's it's stupid 
back to print in general because again like this is my background so i'm yep. super interested in hearing okay. somebody <laughs> like, that actually has expertise in this knowledge Darkroom prints, analog prints versus digital prints. Do collectors care? Do curators care anymore? Of course, there is a love for the handprint. Mm. And the handprint is a magical thing. As um, Even if you print an edition, if it's a handprint, they're all slightly different. Mm. And um, this slight difference makes it sometimes or doesn't make make it it's uh, it's fascinating so we're just producing a posthumous portfolio of um, of an artist christian borchert that we're going to show in november because there there are some vintage prints of his earlier family portraits um, but i couldn't find any vintage or handprint by Christian on the market from the works from the late from the 90s so he what he was doing is in a way similar to uh, Struess um, he was photographing families natural light they decided on the configuration how they want to like appear mm-hmm. um, uh, in their choreography or I don't know how to say it sure the composition in yeah. the composition so he was really making this document um, of that family in so he wanted to make a catalog of families in East Germany which he did for like two years um, 130 families he photographed and then again 10 years later after the war came down 1993 and 1994 he was trying to find these families and made about 25 pictures of the same families in uh-huh. like their then changed homes sure and their changed environments but basically the same place and it's fascinating so Absolutely. and i thought this is this is really what i want like to show by christian borchert um so we work with um the estate holder or the right holder and present the idea to them so they agreed and think it's a good idea to make a portfolio of these prints which in total will be 48 and in in the process i also then called collectors or collections institutional collection and said what do you think about a posthumous portfolio um, of this work because it will cost (laughs) quite a bit of money to produce it and i don't know um, if there is a market for it so give me your feedback and the feedback was uh, it has to be uh, silver gelatine prints not the archival pigment prints which would be the easier uh, way to go um, in terms of also the risk because the silver gelatine we have to print the whole edition through i think the people or so the feedback was not so much we mind if it's an addition of five or eight but it should be a price um, it should be an attractive price like ten thousand euros not more so that's i don't what i'm most interested in is the fact that you said that they wanted it to be the silver gelatin prints yeah. so and this was in the information for me so it has to be silver gelatin it has to be as close to um, the original hmm. uh, as possible but on the other hand um, we work with Ulrich Wüst he's still alive 
<laughs> happily. I hope so. And, As we uh, record this podcast. And yeah. he, at a certain moment, decided to stop the silver gelatin, the hand printing. So there is, so what he's producing now is simply the archival pigment prints. And that also sells as this is his um, legitimate decision. No, but it sounds like if somebody is alive and active and producing the brand new work yeah. as digital archival yeah. prints, then it's fine to just yeah. continue doing that. However, if you originally did some silver gelatin prints or other handmade process prints, yeah. then you really have to sort of, if you're going to reprint those or resell those or do another yeah. portfolio of those, they really need to go back and use that original medium. Yeah. Okay. I think so. Or also for me, so in terms of like satisfaction, going to exhibitions, I really would like to see, if possible, the vintage prints. Oh, wow. yeah, we all want to see and, those. Or at least hand prints by the artist. And if you go into an exhibition, what was it lately? Lee Miller, and it was all like archival pigment late prints. I thought, well, why do I go to see the show? I can buy me the book and um, uh, have the same information of the image so and enjoy it in the privacy of your own home no, no. yeah all right so I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time so i've got two final questions that i generally okay. ask everybody on the podcast so one is, is in the most basic of senses your general feeling on the sort of the direction of the the market the industry the whatever do you have any general advice as far as other people interested in running a gallery either mm. through bad experiences of like stay away from this or you know i feel like this is sort of something that's coming forward anything like this when i had this question 30 years ago basically to wolfgang wittrock who was or who is a well-known dealer in modern expressionist uh I haven't sold a single piece at the time. It was even before <laughs> I went to the art fair, he came to the gallery and I had a chat with him and I said, well, how does it work <laughs> with yeah. the art market and with the selling? And he said, well, basically you have 10 clients, maybe you have 10 or a little bit more artists and you try to match it. And most likely you already know your clients. And I still, and I like that. Mm -hmm. I still like that. So it still reflects my experience. Great. Okay. The last question I always ask, which, uh, did you listen all the way through a podcast? Did you finish it? Uh, no, I haven't finished it. Okay, yeah. great. Then you don't know what this question is. <laughs> Surprise. I, I, I'm, in all honesty, I'll be completely sincere about this. I'm a little nervous that you're going to think I'm an idiot for this, but I'm going to ask it anyways because the name is called The Wise Fool and I have to look like an idiot or else it's not one of my podcasts. So the goal of the podcast is to try and learn how the arts industry works. Okay. Mm. I'm a practicing artist, so I created this quantifiable outcome or result of the podcast mm. is that I want to be able to, on the and this is a short-term goal, so but it's still going to be a couple of years, I want to be able to try and get a piece of my artwork on exhibition in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Mm -hmm. So every single person that comes on the podcast, I ask them, 
what is a step in the process to getting me to that goal that I could do? And whatever you tell me to do, I will do and keep people involved in the process through the podcast. I think everybody asking the same question. So how to get into the yeah, Olymp the to Tate MoMA. Modern, MoMA. I mean, it doesn't matter. It, it's yeah. just an institutional idea. It's like, but the, the problem, it, it's not about like, we all know it's going to take time. We all know it's going to take building relationships. We all, you know, we know it's going to take building um, relationships with galleries, relationships mm. with curators, relationships with mm. collectors. We get that all kind of stuff. What I'm, what I'm just asking for, I'm, and I'm not asking for like the final step, like, mm. hey, do you have that curator's phone number? Mm. <laughs> I mean, what I'm asking for is what can an artist, so in this case, I'm just using myself as a proxy. So any mm. artist who's listening to this, do to put themselves on the right path so professionally career-wise just is also to get to that mm, i want to get it into moma i'm using yeah i just so uh, MoMA, this MoMA is, is so, just so, a so particular the, 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 yeah <laughs> i know it's just I mean, you, you can think tate modern you, whatever no, works for you whatever so whatever place it is so where do you want to have it there and um then the question the other way around do you know what this institution is doing um so i f find it of course as a gallery you get these emails requests by artists presenting their portfolios to you but i look at that stuff and i think they have yeah. no idea they don't look at what i'm doing why they're sending me their stuff they it's a waste of their time if they would make the research what we're doing then they could connect and i think it's all about finding these connecting points but there's no magic trick um, you can explain it's just pushing and going and adjusting also your moves so you cannot expect that you do something and the world um, was waiting for it. Right, because I mean, you know, t if 10 different artists all heard whatever feedback you give mm. and they all practice it exactly the same, they're gonna get 10 different results. Because mm. it just, there's no perfect path. Yeah, and the stories are always a combination of luck and push and trying and catching, catching the luck, so it's, um, or chasing this this moment where it. you can connect and then find a dialogue and also improve yourself well okay along that line you mentioned about the idea of uh, finding artists and connections mm. and stuff how do you how in your history how have you found your artists because it's probably not somebody submitted an email or dropped a portfolio at the gallery so wh what are some of the methods of finding new artists that you have utilized that have been successful for you i think the work has to talk to me and right, but how does the work get in front of you so many chances um i know that's the hard uh, part that's the it's the unknown it's like <laughs> i'll do an exhibition over here and hopefully somebody will yes. walk in so for example nice story i like to tell the story okay great I always wanted to go to Japan because my father, even we lived in East Germany, he had a chance to go to Japan. He was working for the States Opera as a doctor to go to Japan since the mid 70s. And he was coming back with this amazing little 
toys and his slideshow and that really fascinated me so japan was always on my vision that i want to go and see that and i think it was 1995 i finally had a chance to participate or some of the artists participated in in an exhibition so i could join them i went there it was outside of tokyo in the woods and then basically the last day i said I really want to know what's going on here in the galleries, in, in in the arts, as we were basically sitting for one week in the woods with some Japanese artists, and it was fun. But um, there were no, how you say it, um, these maps, papers, where to find galleries. So oh, this yeah, is all didn't, did not exist. Things, it was yeah. also pre-internet. But they said, well, there's this area called Ginza and there are some galleries, so maybe you just go to Ginza and check it out. So I was basically strolling the streets in the Ginza district and looking for galleries. And I finally found a sign on the, on, in, the, in the side street on one of the buildings saying Gallery K first floor. I said, okay, maybe that's a gallery. Let's check it out. Going up first floor, opening the door was a tiny space with a wooden floor, one column in the middle, and there was a counter. Somebody was sitting behind the counter. Space was completely empty. Door open, he looked at me, I looked at him. I said, oh, I don't want to be unpolite, so I just asked him the question. Uh, when do you make your next exhibition? And he said, no, no, take a look carefully, sculptures. I said, sculptures? <laughs> empty where's the sculpture and then i saw that the spotlight is like pointing on the floor and in the floor there was a little tiny wheat piece growing out of the floor <laughs> okay. i said huh? sculptures and he said yes wood carving i said wait a minute <laughs> that's something this is totally nuts only only a Japanese can do <laughs> such crazy thing to make a little tiny wheat piece in wood and like painting it. And so it looked absolutely real. Thought, okay. Natural question. How much is it? <laughs> he said, hmm, I don't know, but I can call the artist. I said, okay, then call the artist. <laughs> I was waiting 20 minutes later, sweating young guy and at the moment, at this time, I didn't know. So if this is like an old handcraft artist, so what, what's going to happen here right. next? So I thought, oh, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, that story. And um, so Suda appeared. I said, I want to buy the piece. Uh, I want to buy one of your sculptures. And he was very pleased. His English was uh, as poor as mine. So we exchanged numbers, I think. What was it? 200 300 dollars i paid for i paid basically everything i had in cash <laughs> because next day i have to go home i couldn't come back to the gallery i gave him all my cash <laughs> just enough to make it uh, sure. back to 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 the camp and took the little tiny wheat piece and uh, thought wow if i never go back to japan this is this is a perfect souvenir I think a week or two weeks later I got a letter from Suda thanking that I bought his work and so sent also 1000 yen in return because he said I overpaid him I said oh wow that's a nice story anyway 
And That's another rare. months later, I then got a fax or letter from Gallery Koyanagi that they now represent the artist and they know that I'm interested. And so if, um, if I want something, I can communicate with them. And I was actually really happy that there's somebody English speaking I can communicate. And um, then Suda became a very important Japanese sculptor. And um, this is how I found him. So these are these stories. And, and I love those stories as a young, like how long ago was that? Uh, this was 1995. Right. Yeah. Okay. So this is my point. So that, that that's great for like young gallerists that like, oh, they they have the time and they have the where, you know, to go out and find all this kind of stuff. Do you still do that now? Would you still go to Japan and go wandering through the streets looking for, for an art gallery? Mm, I think I'm not the person for that circumstance maybe anymore, but... I think what's a very healthy situation is when you find the equal match and you develop the thing together than rather expecting that uh, David Swerner is uh, coming to your studio to pick you up and move you to heaven right away. Uh, it's, okay, well, that's an interesting thing. Uh, so the artist and the gallery probably should be on a similar level to one another and then grow together. Yeah, that's a very successful model, or that was or is the, historically speaking, often the model it goes. That's a great thing, but that's a great thing that not a lot of people know, yeah. because a lot of artists sit around and think, oh, I want to be with this incredibly prestigious gallery. Well, but that incredibly prestigious gallery is already sort of above you, like you need yeah. to find somebody that's as similar or maybe just slightly above you to to grow with instead of trying to just jump into something that's already. And the very successful stories are often the stories where the people stick together through bad times and through good times. And um, when the artist isn't, they all have to develop together. So the problem is also when like one side jumps high and the other cannot match it and make it or does not want to take the risk or is falling apart on the way of course that doesn't work but um, you have to look for the match in your generation and the person you want to make your way it's a it's it's a relationship it's a partnership fabulous way to end this all thank you very much for your time this has been a pleasure (laughs) 